This episode describes violence in graphic detail. Listener discretion is advised. Okay, the date is 12, uh, 28 of 1987. We're at the Ronald Gene Simmons residence, which is located on the north side of Broomfield Road. That was Ray Caldwell of the Pope County Sheriff's Office at the start of a video shot by crime scene investigators who had responded to the home he described. Hours after Ronald Gene Simmons turned himself in following a rampage that killed two people and injured four others in neighboring Russellville, the Sheriff's Office turned its attention to the Simmons family home and the 13 acres that surrounded it. The house was locked, but deputies could see bodies inside. Caldwell is now retired. He recently met with me at the sheriff's office headquarters in Russellville and recalled the details of that ghastly crime scene. We went to the front door and it was a sliding patio door and there was a stick in the track where the door could not be opened from, you know, the outside. So we went around and then on the south side of the residence, there was a window that was not locked. And then when we looked inside, that's when we discovered bodies laying on the floor inside the house. At which time, you know, we made entry to make sure, you know, where anybody was alive or anything. And that's when we started discovering the bodies in the house. Two days before law enforcement showed up at the house on Mockingbird Hill on December 26, 1987, Simmons murdered seven members of his family, in addition to the seven he had killed four days earlier. So there were 14 total victims on that property. The victims that the sheriff's office first saw lying on the floor that night were among those who were killed December 26th. They had shown up at Mockingbird Hill that day without knowing they were coming there to be executed. Just like the victims before them, the adults were fatally shot and the children, two of whom were one year old, were strangled. We had a lot of small children there, and it, it gets to you. I mean, it, it gets to you. I've done it for 39 years. It bothers you. Presented by the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, you're listening to The Devil of Pope County, America's Worst Family Massacre. The bodies at the sheriff's office first saw the afternoon of December 28, 1987, were the four adult victims from the slayings that occurred two days earlier, two of Simmons's grown children, Sheila and Billy, and their respective spouses. That was his daughter who was laying on the floor right in front of the Christmas tree there. It was covered in a blue blanket, I believe she was. You could see part of her torso out, you know, and there was another body at the door, uh, which was her husband, was his son-in-law. And then in the kitchen there, there was uh, his daughter-in-law and his son in there that was shot. While in the house, detectives also discovered the body of seven-year-old Sylvia, Sheila's oldest child, lying face down on one of the beds in a room down the hall from the living room. It would take some time, about 18 hours, before they would find the remaining nine bodies. December 26th, the day Ronald Gene Simmons waited for the rest of his family to show up at the house was a Saturday. Billy and his wife, Renata, and Sheila and her husband, Dennis, 
were feeling anxious about their visit to Mockingbird Hill. That was not unusual. They always had anxiety about seeing their father, but this visit felt different. They knew they had made progress with their mother and that her decision to leave their father was inevitably going to happen. They weren't sure when, but they could sense it was going to be soon. They could tell by the letters she had written to them. They were hoping their father did not suspect anything. Billy and Renata lived about two and a half hours away in Fordyce. The couple, along with their one-year-old son, Trey, arrived at Mockingbird Hill first. His son and daughter and their small baby came, and they were sitting evidently at the kitchen table from what it looked like because the table was turned over and the chairs were turned over. She was back against the north wall, and he shot her several times. You could tell she was fighting on the ground because she had blood smears all over her hand and in her face and stuff where she was fighting. I guess trying to stay alive when she shot, and her husband was on the side right there on the floor, and he had been shot. Billy was shot twice, once in the right cheek and again in his skull, just above his right ear. The muzzle of the gun was about one foot away from Billy's head when he was shot, according to the medical examiner's report. When his body was discovered, Billy was found lying face up in the dining room of the house, and his body had been covered with a winter coat. Renata was shot a total of seven times in the head and neck. As Ray Caldwell mentioned, she fought to survive, possibly because she saw Simmons shoot her husband first and immediately knew that she and her son were in grave danger. After those nine total shots were fired into Trey's parents, Simmons turned his attention to the petrified one-year-old boy. He used a nylon fishing line to kill him and relied again on that barrel of water to ensure that the child was no longer breathing. Now all Simmons had to do was wait. Sheila and her husband and two children were expected to show up at any minute. Ronald Gene Simmons was known to drink a lot of cheap wine and beer, so it's easy to conjure an image of him sitting in his living room chair, waiting for the last of his family members to show up, with a drink in one hand and a gun in the other. It's likely that he heard the car pull up. Dennis, Sheila, and their two children, Sylvia and little Michael, were headed toward the door, oblivious to the bloody scene inside. Evidently, she came in first, and he shot her right in front of the Christmas tree there, and she fell on the floor. And then when he went back to the, he went to the door, and I guess when his son-in-law come through the door, he shot him in the head right there, and he fell right at the door. It isn't known whether Sheila noticed the bodies of her brother and sister-in-law before she was killed. Moments after she entered the house, Simmons opened fire and shot Sheila six times in the head. Sheila's children... Sylvia and Michael entered the house the same time as their mother did. It's possible that Michael was in his mother's arms when she was shot. Dennis heard the shots and ran inside. The injuries on Dennis indicate there was a fight before he was killed. He had lacerations on his face and hands, according to the autopsy report. Dennis was shot only one time, at close range, on the left side of his face. The bullet entered his brain and he died instantly. Sylvia had run into one of the bedrooms to hide. Simmons found her, pinned her arms down with his knees, wrapped a cord around her neck, and strangled her. 
Simmons grabbed Michael, who was on the floor, likely in the living room, and strangled him. Michael's head was dunked in that barrel of water. His body was still wet when the medical examiner performed the autopsy on him days later. Simmons murdered every family member who came onto his property during those five days. The bodies of Michael and Trey would eventually be stuffed inside black trash bags and placed inside the trunks of two sedans parked on the property, a short distance from the pit where their aunts, uncles, and grandmother were buried. The bodies that remained inside the house were covered with coats and blankets. Simmons left at one point to go to a Sears store to pick up gifts that were ordered through a catalog, children's books, a radio recorder, a hair crimping machine, and a pair of girls' watches. Later that same night, he went to a club in Russellville. He bought a couple of drinks for himself, gave a toast to Sheila, and then downed those drinks. He came home afterward and went to sleep. It was maybe 36 hours later that Simmons carried out his shooting spree in Russellville. On December 28th, after Simmons was in custody, the first deputy from the Pope County Sheriff's Office showed up at Mockingbird Hill. He wasn't able to get a good look inside, and with no search warrant, there was little he could do other than scan the area to find obvious signs of a crime. After he canvassed the area around the house, he got on his radio and told dispatch, quote, there's nobody here, no sign of life, end quote. Sheriff James Bolin and Lieutenant Jay Winters were at the jail trying to devise a way to get their suspect talking. Bolin, in particular, had a feeling the suspect committed more atrocities, but Simmons kept saying nothing. Simmons was so unresponsive with investigators that they wondered whether he was deaf. One of those investigators, who was with the Arkansas State Police, led him through one of the doors of the building. After they entered a room, the investigator grabbed the steel door and slammed it shut as hard as he could. There was a loud bang, and it startled Simmons, causing him to flinch. That's how the investigator knew for sure that Simmons was not deaf, just cold and distant. Bolin had learned from witnesses in Russellville that Simmons had a big family in Dover, so the sheriff feared the worst. There was no use trying to get Simmons to talk. It was clear he was not going to. So Bolin's efforts turned to obtaining search warrants for the property. But the judge who handled search warrants for Pope County was out of town that day. Bolin was not inclined to wait. He was ready to call for an emergency search basically circumventing the search warrant process. A local criminal attorney, Robert Irwin, known around town as Doc Irwin, advised the sheriff not to do that. He told him that if he was representing Simmons, he would surely file a motion to throw out the evidence collected from the house on the basis that it was illegally seized. 
Bolin ignored that advice, especially considering Simmons's reaction when he was asked about the whereabouts of his family and when it was discovered that two vehicles on the property did not belong to Simmons or his wife. Bolin suspected that a lot of people were in that house, and if there was any chance of at least one of them being alive, that was the probable cause he needed to get inside without having to wait for a warrant. Besides, those who peeked through the unlocked window saw bodies. There was no reason to wait after that. As it turned out, Doc Irwin did wind up serving as Simmons's court-appointed attorney. As promised, he filed that motion in court. The judge presiding over the case later would reject Irwin's argument, much the way Boland did. By late afternoon, December 28th, sheriff's deputies entered the house through that unlocked window. The first thing detectives saw was Sheila's body near the Christmas tree. As one of the detectives headed toward the sliding glass door to unlock it from the living room side, he walked over Dennis's body. He turned to his left and saw Billy and Renata lying near the kitchen table. The broomstick was removed. The sliding door was opened, and one of the crime scene investigators held the video camera, which was lent to the sheriff's office by the Arkansas State Police. The camera operator followed Ray Caldwell as he entered every room of the house. Just before the sun went down, the bodies found inside the house were removed, placed in body bags, and loaded into vans. They were driven away. The bodies of Sheila, Dennis, Billy, Renata, and Sylvia. During the course of the day, detectives combed every square inch of the house, looking for clues as to the whereabouts of the other family members. During the search, they found wrapped gifts, stuffed animals, and dolls, all of which were intended to be given to the children on Christmas morning. The names on several of the gifts are wrote addressed to the children of the family. The last room of the house they checked was Ronald Jean Simmons's bedroom. The door was locked, so it had to be kicked in. Sheriff Bolin was the one who kicked the door open. They expected more carnage inside, but that's not what they found. What they did see still shocked them. Inside that room was the only air conditioning unit in the entire house. There were shelves filled with books, and there was another section of the wall covered by a curtain. When it was pulled back, the investigators found shelves of imported beer and gourmet food, including canned oysters. One of the investigators would later tell the media that it looked like the wall of a delicatessen. Every luxury item that Simmons owned, he hoarded. Ray told me that by the end of the day on December 28, 1987, several children, as well as Simmons's wife, Becky, were still unaccounted for, and he and the other deputies at the scene figured they were probably all deceased. The blood spatter on the walls, particularly in the room where little Jean was shot, indicated that many more family members were the victims of violence. Detectives figured the bodies were somewhere on the property, but they did not know where. The search would resume the following morning. By early afternoon of the day of the Russellville shootings, perhaps even before noon, media outlets across the state caught wind that something was going on in Pope County. There were two main metro newspapers in Little Rock that covered news across the state, the Arkansas Democrat and the Arkansas Gazette. To the editors managing those papers, news gathering was a blood sport. 
Little Rock, Arkansas's largest city and the largest U.S. city between Memphis and Dallas, is about 75 miles southeast of Russellville. The Democrat and Gazette feud was the newspaper equivalent of the Hatfields and McCoys. Little Rock had one of the fiercest newspaper rivalries in the entire country. That's not hyperbolic. Even today, that old rivalry is literally referred to as the newspaper war. The Democrat and Gazette competed mightily for every scoop statewide, and some of the battle lines that were drawn during the height of the newspaper war came during the coverage of this case. When word got out of what was happening in Pope County, one of the first reporters in Little Rock who had any reaction to it at all was Noel Oman, who at the time was a breaking news reporter for the Arkansas Democrat. I was off that morning. I listened to the news on the radio, and the KRN, they broke in their programming at some point, said there was a shooting in Russellville, and there were some casualties. So I called Ray Hobbs. He was a city editor at the time great editor, great at pulling everybody together as in stories like this to cover. I told him about it. He had the state wire there on his computer. It's not on the state wire. If it's not there, it didn't happen. I said, trust me, there's a, something going on in Russville. Noel was a cub reporter at the time, but his news sense was already getting pretty sharp because he was right. When it dawned on veteran editor Ray Hobbs, that the Russellville shootings warranted coverage. He told one of his reporters to hottail it up there. The Russellville spree shootings, which at that point already seemed as horrible as any in recent memory, was covered by the national networks that night. Here is a portion of a segment aired by CBS Evening News. Several of the wounded remain hospitalized tonight, one with a gunshot to the head. Police say they haven't been able to establish a motive for the shootings, but they believe Simmons was targeting former employers. Tonight, police say Simmons is refusing to speak. Sometime late that afternoon, word began trickling in about the discoveries of the suspect's home. It became clear that the Democrats' coverage in Pope County that day could not be handled by just one person. So Noel was called into action to provide some backup. At some point, they called me back. It was probably Ray and said, I think they're going to find some more bodies at the guy's house. So once you go to Dover... By nightfall that day, the Polk County Sheriff's Office had found five bodies in the house, and Noel saw them. A lieutenant with the Sheriff's Office allowed Noel inside the house so that he could take detailed notes of the scene. Noel told me that his memory of being inside that house isn't all that clear. He and I both agreed that was probably for the best. The following morning was a busy one. Not only were detectives scouring the property on Broomfield Road, but the suspect himself was scheduled to appear before a judge for a probable cause hearing. John Patterson was the appointed judge. Simmons, the defendant, would not answer questions. He would not even nod or shake his head. A frustrated judge finally appointed Doc Irwin and another local attorney, John Harris, to represent Simmons. Back at Mockingbird Hill, the first thing detectives searched was a pond on the property. It was while deputies were searching there that one of the detectives, either from the boat or from the edge of the pond, noticed some sheet metal lying on the ground near the woods. When detectives got closer to it, they started smelling kerosene. The crew put on gloves, 
removed the sheet metal, and started digging. One detective spotted a strip of barbed wire and followed it along. The barbed wire was hung up on something. It was a body. The barbed wire was piled in the grave so thick that detectives needed a towing winch cable attached to a four-wheel drive vehicle to pull the wire up and out of the grave. In that clip, you could hear one of the detectives tell another that the barbed wire was there to ward off any stray dogs. Detectives would dig for a little while and then find a body. they dig more and find another body. Becky and little Jean were among the buried. The remaining bodies were children. Loretta, age 17. Eddie, age 14. Marianne, age 11. Rebecca Lynn, age 8. And Barbara age three. The mass grave was three feet and four inches in width, and six feet and two inches in length. As for the depth, the first body was located about two feet below the surface. That same day, detectives popped open the trunks of two vehicles, a Chevy Caprice and a Chevy Nova. They were parked on the property, about 100 yards from the gravesite. That's where they found the bodies of toddlers Trey Simmons and Michael McNulty. Their bodies were found inside trash bags, in separate trunks. You can hear a distressed Ray Caldwell describe what he found inside the first trash bag he had cut open with a pocket knife. It is the body of a white male or a white child, child with a yellow type sweater. It was a traumatizing experience for everyone at the scene. Ray told me that he learned early in his career never to drink after a stressful day. He realized that had he picked up a bottle right after digging up those bodies 36 years ago, he might never have learned to put it down. following day, on Wednesday, December 30th, Judge Patterson ordered Simmons to the state hospital at Benton for a psychiatric evaluation. The mental health expert who would interview Simmons ruled him competent to stand trial. Before he left for the hospital, Simmons sat down for a meeting with his attorneys. The specifics of what was said during that conversation are not known, but Doc Irwin and John Harris would later say, based in part from that attorney-client conversation that they had with him, that Simmons wanted to leave no room for doubt when it came to his guilt, or his desire to admit guilt. He wanted to be convicted, and he wanted to be executed. Simmons's actions for the remainder of his life were those of a man who was beckoning to be put to death for his crimes before he was sent to that state hospital. Perhaps immediately after one of his early court hearings, Simmons stood before a row of reporters. This is the only audio recording of Simmons's voice that I could find. Will you ever tell us why? I'm not going to comment on that. You're leaving the door open, but I'm closing the door on it. You can make your own judgment on that. Ronald Gene Simmons did wind up talking to someone. One day, while housed in the state hospital for his mental health evaluation, Simmons was captivated by someone he saw on a small television screen. The channel was on THV11, Little Rock's CBS affiliate. One of the anchors for the station's evening news was Ann Jansen. Whatever Simmons saw in Ann's eyes that evening, or whether it was something else about her face, it prompted him to pin her a letter. It took Ann by surprise, to say the least. Completely out of the blue. 
completely. I was an anchor then, so my reporting was really limited to, you know, specials or, you know, during ratings books or something like that. But I still reported, but not as much as I did when I was a full-time reporter, obviously, because I had two newscasts. So, yeah, I had absolutely no clue. Ann Jansen, who later got married and now goes by the surname Broadwater, is retired from the news business, but still lives in Arkansas. Ann and I sat down and spoke a couple times about this case, including once at the campus of the University of Central Arkansas in Conway. She donated some of her broadcasts and source material to the library's archives. As we sat at a table, she sifted through those letters penned by Simmons and came upon the very first one he wrote to her 35 years ago. I mean, the first one, of course, I'm always going to remember just because of how crazy it is and, and how he didn't want any... He wanted me to be the only one that would receive these letters. Uh, thank you for your time and consideration is at the end of it. Sincerely. Arjene Simmons Sr. The letter was unusual in so many ways. The randomness of it, the way it was written, the curse of writing, and the fact that he didn't use margins. It seemed like every inch of the page had ink on it. Looking at the letters, every inch, every margin is full. His writing is tiny. He obviously goes on and on and on and on in these letters. I mean, it, it's not normal. The instructions that were included in that first letter also were unusual. Simmons made it known that he was interested in maintaining a correspondence with Anne, but he wanted his letters to be handled only by her. When that first letter came, one of the things that's included in it is he wants me to take out a post office box in my name, pay for it myself, because he was worried that then if the TV station, you know, was involved, that they would um, claim possession. And he wanted those to be just for me. So I did as I was told. With her station's approval, Anne opened that P.O. box, and for the better part of two years, she kept checking that box located inside the federal courthouse in downtown Little Rock mostly every day. I asked Anne during one of our interviews to read a short portion of that first letter. Ms. Anne Jansen, I have tried to anticipate some of the various situations that might develop as a result of this letter. I ask that you please do not make public any of the contents of this particular letter. Publicity is certainly not my motive. I'm writing this to you, underlined, as the individual person you are, not because of where you work or because of the type of business you are in. I want anything I write to you to be in your sole custody, possession, and for your attention. Simmons wasn't necessarily granting Anne an interview, not in the traditional sense. He wanted to talk to her because there was just something about her. In his ensuing letters, Simmons's tone softened a little. I would say the first one, you know, very formal, trying to explain why he was contacting me without really telling me why he was contacting me. I mean, I didn't really understand why he was contacting me, but then it just became a little more informal and a little more personal, I guess. He would share more of himself. Anne received a total of eight letters from Simmons. She also sat down and spoke to him a total of four times, a couple of times at the Pope County Jail, once at the Maximum Security Unit at Tucker during one of his trials, and lastly at the Cummins Unit, where the death chamber was located. 
No cameras were allowed inside for any of the interviews. That was not a jail or prison policy. That was a Ronald Gene Simmons policy. Anne was not even allowed to take notes during their conversations. If Simmons got the sense that Anne was reporting on or using the information he was giving her for journalistic purposes, he would have cut off all communications with her. He basically told her that. Of course, Anne was not there just to have him fill her head with information. At some point, she was going to turn around and use that information, with little he was willing to provide. The broadcast could wait. What Anne wanted to do more than anything else was serve as a liaison between Simmons and the victim's families. Part of that was reaching out to his loved ones, who I knew were heartbroken, and trying to be the go-between to find out what they needed to know that would give them some sense of closure or, or just understanding or just in some way help with their grief and what they were going through. So I very openly said, you tell me what you want to know and I will go. And he doesn't know that's coming. He didn't know I was talking to them. So I just wanted as a service to do that because I understood that, that was my position and that nobody else had that with him. I was, I was it. The two families she got to know during the course of her work on the case were Viola and Roger O'Shields, who you heard from in episode two, and Patrick McNulty Sr. and Patrick McNulty Jr. Patrick Sr. was Dennis's father, and Patrick Jr. was his brother. From the first few minutes of the first conversation Anne had with Simmons, she noticed his extreme level of paranoia. If there was anything that wasn't bolted down in the room, whether it was a light bulb overhead or a switch on the wall, he assumed there was a type of listening device inside of it. There was something ironic about that because he was always the one who wanted to have his eyes on everything. Simmons was notoriously controlling and deceptive, and perhaps that's why he assumed everyone else was, too. He was the master of manipulation and was yet then always worried that others were equally so and always out, you know, trying to get him, always around the corner, always looking at him. There was no priest, lawyer, investigator, family member, or psychiatrist that he was going to spill his guts to. Simmons did speak to a couple other journalists while behind bars, including one at the Arkansas Democrat. But Anne was unique in that he chose her specifically, and he spoke to her on the condition that she not report anything he said. But what started it all? What was it about this one news anchor that jump-started his desire to write letters, invite her to meet him, and show a willingness to be seated face-to-face -face with her? It wasn't until the last time he spoke to Anne that he revealed the answer. She reminded him of his oldest daughter, Sheila. Eyes. I think he said eyes. And my eyes are dark, big, dark brown eyes. Not as yeah. black as hers, but yeah, yeah I guess... Who knows? I mean, he's in a psych hospital looking at a TV that I would have bolted to the ceiling, black and white, probably. I don't know. So it may have looked different, but however he processed it, he landed on me. <laughs> <laughs> Yay! Those familiar with this story already are aware of that extra layer of depravity that makes this case stand out from just about any other notorious murder case, even those involving a high body count. 
Ronald Gene Simmons's love for his eldest daughter manifested in one very disturbing way. Coming up on The Devil of Pope County, America's Worst Family Massacre. All the kids went on the bus, but he would drive that girl to school himself. If that's your decision, you can put the laptop down and get the hell out of the building. The Devil of Pope County is written and hosted by Tony Holt, produced by Kyle McDaniel, and presented by the Arkansas Democrat Gazette.